This is the multi-sport podcast for triathletes, duathletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers and fitness enthusiasts. Supported by NoPins, supplier of number attachment systems, visit nopins.com and safeforkracing.co.uk for all your biking needs. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. Welcome to the 138th JBST.com Smartcast, now in its 10th year of broadcasting. I'm Coach Joe Beer and I'm joined today at South Fort Racing and by SouthforkRacing.co.uk's Martin Crocker. Hello Joe and hello everybody. Hello everybody, yes. The sound is super duper and it's thanks to our sound engineer Henry. So thank you, Henry, thank also you, part of southfortracing.co.uk. Very talented young man. Very talented. So straight in with the iTunes reviews, I think is always the point where we start, getting your feedback. And we've got one that came in earlier in the month of August by Brogzy1. And he says his title is Inform Informative get my words correct informative and entertaining and he says i've listened to the jbst podcast for years and joe coached me to great success a few years back and knows his onions this podcast is really informative and useful the subject matter could be dry e.g tire choice for bicycles <laughs> is hardly the most gangster topic um but the banter between joe and martin keeps entertaining so uh, yeah i know that's uh, that's uh, ian brogdon so thank you for that ian and um you know we want to hear from you. We want to hear whether you like certain topics. We want to hear what topics you've got in terms of uh, questions. We've got questions tonight, which we will record and uh, send out to you. But it's great to have your questions. Keep them shorter than a book, but longer than just one one uh, word. There's a little bit of variation within those two extremes. But um, yes, give us your feedback. Give us your questions. That's what this podcast is all about. We'll try and hit most, of, if we can, between us, hit most of the points that uh, need addressing in uh, in the questions. So yeah, yeah. Go to go to one from Michael Laxton, who says he's doing triathlon between sprint and Olympic distance, and he says. Uh, Hi, Joe Martin. I got in touch back in March and had my question answered on the podcast. Thanks for that. And regarding progression and how to quantify it, you mentioned that it'd be interesting to see how things went further down the line. So I thought I'd get back to you. Uh, you might recall I'd noticed a blip in progression while we were running had got faster despite my heart rate remaining the same. Now I've got over half the season data recorded, um, a much clearer pattern has emerged and it's great news. As an example, back in February, I rode one of my regular routes, 16 and a half miles, an hour 12. A hideous route and, and not an absolute slog either. An average of 155 heart rate uh, with 41 minutes in zone one. Uh, average speed around 14. Looking back, that seems painfully slow. As now I'm able to do the same route in 59 minutes, so that's 13 minutes quicker, and at an average heart rate of 150, so with five beats less. And uh, 53 minutes are in zone one, so the zone one time has actually gone up by 12 minutes, or roughly 25% more time. He says, um, "I can even go, uh, I can even go out this ride now. Uh, say to myself, don't even try to be fast, or even get close to being out of breath, 
and still smash my old time with an average heart rate of 145. Sticking to the philosophy of 80% endurance work has definitely made a difference with my other 20% being hill work, spinning sessions. I set a target last year of having completed Windermere Olympic in 3.8 um, and to hit two hours 45 this year. Um, I came 22nd of 325 people and a time of just over 2.36. So he'd gone from three hours eight to 2.36. Um, the strategy of working to heart rate and training smart versus hard has really paid dividends. Uh, there's hills I, I dread climbing on the bike that I can now whiz up without even hitting zone two. Uh, thanks very much for your help on the podcast uh, and in various magazines. Uh, it has made me smarter and faster. So that was Mike Laxton. And that's just, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the pieces of paper we like to get because <laughs> I think there are skeptics that, you know, sort of think um, it, it can't be easy. You know, you've got to go out and bash yourself. And of course, it's not all easy, but a little bit of hard work goes a long way. But the little bit of hard work has got to be supported from underneath by plenty of steady um, training. And I think that's what Michael's proved himself. He's held himself back in the steady sessions to actually improve himself not only in those steady sessions, which now no longer feel slow, but he's now also able to race, um, you know, half an hour quicker over an Olympic. So it's, it's proof of the pudding. It's nice to hear. And of course, not everyone's going to get that level of progression. Not everyone's year would have gone to plan. But it's the proof of the pudding that I hope sometimes gets across is that we're not scared either of us of doing hard work training, but we realise most of it can't be hard work. While Joel was uh, was reading that out, Mike, I was stood up with my hands up in the air in some form of uh, some uh, gesture, some victory salute towards uh, towards your progress, which is uh, which is brilliant, which is absolutely top notch. Yeah, you think um, you think we haven't we haven't intervened directly and told him a million and one things. We've just pointed him simply in the right direction. And a lot of people think that, you know, they see faster athletes and think, oh, I've got to push as hard as them or I won't be as good as them. You know, and he's a, he's a 308 person and he's come down to, um, uh, to 236. Yeah. Now, some of that could be conditions, some of it could be experience, but lots of people would like to take half an hour off and there's very rarely that much time just down to conditions and whether they know what they're doing. So I think a lot of it has to come down to fitness and a lot of it is about the confidence that he's got from seeing the progression. If you don't see progression, you go and do something even harder often, and maybe that's not right. But if you can see progression from actually building the logical starting point, which is the majority of what you do, not all the time, now he's in the season, I bet he's doing some harder work, but at the same heart rate, he's doing harder work now anyway. But do you, you obviously your insight to this would be far, far better than, than mine, but would, do you see people, like for instance with Mike, he's educated himself with it. He's educated himself with, you know, why, is, why am I doing that? Oh, I see why I'm doing it. You know, the 80, kind of 80, 20 rule then, if we, you kind of went that, that way with it. But do you see guys that, um, guys and girls that kind of don't even log their training? So can't see the progression that they're making. This is, I think, this is one of the major downfalls. Is if you can't see progression in doing your eighty twenty, for instance, then how how do you know a it's working and mm. b you know if you can't if you can't measure it if you can't measure that improvement, like you said, you just kind of you beat yourself up about it, thinking that yeah. oh I'm going to have to go harder, and you just end up tiring yourself out. But he's got some quite simple measures which are yes. good. You know, he's, yeah, got, yeah, he's yeah. got his average heart rate and he's got his speed in a set course, which can always have variations of of weather and what bike you choose. Um, you go to the other end of the spectrum. You get the person that will 
over over analyze every session have you know gallons of data on Garmin and Strava and spreadsheets and all that stuff and they really like the numbers that's great that's sort of you know an enthusiast really getting into it but I don't think it has to be complicated it certainly doesn't have to be the way that um, I think a good example is a, um, a particular athlete that I've started working with towards next year has sort of said look I've only ever really done it simply on paper I've roughly got a spreadsheet but it just tells me this this and this um, I don't really know too many numbers about this and this I know what my pace is for this distance in terms of watts I know what my you know heart rates are um, but I'm not doing loads of stuff on you know Strava and loads yeah. of analysis and stuff and after a while as much as you can look at data and try and find the marginal gains I think there's some simplicity in just getting the right base work done at the right level, which should always be within zone, whether that's lower down at the 65% level or higher at 75 and a bit higher. But if you get that right, then that's that session done right. And if you overthink that, you're spending a lot of time on numbers that are you know, fairly irrelevant. Yes, relevant, he can yeah. see, you know, Mike can see his progress of speed over time, but you can't start monitoring that week on week and trying to see, you know, have I run that particular course two minutes quicker? Yeah, I bet you have, but all you're doing is setting out the door thinking, I bet I bet I can try and stay in zone, but get this one a bit quicker. It's time in the bank, which is irrelevant to actually see whether you're just going as quick as the last time. Because of course that progression won't always go in a straight line. That's it. That's and he it. took his data when he first was looking at it and he was looking, you know, in February, and then he went through to when he sent this to us, which was in the latter part of July. Now, February to July, you get the increase in daylight hours, you get the increase in fitness, you get often the increase in motivation and time available for people to do it. But if you start, let's say you listen to this and in September, then October, November, you start sort of building back. Um, it's hard to think you're gonna get a lot of progression in that going into the middle of winter. So you don't wanna be measuring too often about whether you've progressed or whether you've progressed, because all you'll be doing is pretending, as some people do, oh yeah, I, I was kind of in zone one, and they weren't really. What they were trying to do is hold on to their ego by doing the same course at the same speed or keeping up with somebody. And meanwhile, they're not staying in zone one. And he's kept to the rule of doing more of his training in base level. And what he's not done is tried to say, I'm looking for that progression. He's just waited for it to happen. And I think you're right. Certain amount of measurement of what's going on makes sense. But a lot of it is about time in the bank. And if you're trying to acknowledge how fast have I just gone over that hour, you're missing the point of, that's an hour in the bank, that's gonna make a difference in maybe two weeks time. And if it does make a difference in two weeks time, then you've done it well, because you've done that training and you've let your body adapt. If you try to look for it to make a difference in two days time, you're in too much of a rush. Yeah, I, I, I still think that's kind of, like the reason why I mentioned this is um, people, for, for me, especially in kind of the, um, you know the retail side of it. People want to have the gadgets, you know, and 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 I understand what they want to want to get from it, but they don't see the incremental increases that they've done, you know, the the gains that they've made because um, they're too busy, like you said, looking at irrelevant numbers all the time. You know, every training session, look at their average power, and you know, you need to know it. Make sure you're staying in the right zones, etc., um, etc. Et but you know, people tend through the winter just to go, oh, you can't wait for the season to start. Yeah. And instead of just having a look back from when they started uh, their training, maybe in November, um, and then had a look at it in kind of March, April, 
and just go, oh, wow, actually, yeah, I've made, made quite an improvement. And taking the confidence from that, mm. that they're on the right track. Mm. So, like you said, you can buy yourself a heart rate monitor, a power meter, you know, the best computer, a bicycle computer in the world. But if you're not going to heed a measurement, mm. if you're not going to look at it for a, you know, you know, to improve, then it's pointless having it. Yeah, because the here and now of am I in the right zone for this session is more important than am I going quicker than yesterday. Yeah. Um, if you want to get improvements, there was this logic that, well, if I want to ride at 25 miles an hour, swim at 115s, run at, you know, seven minute miles, whatever, I've got to go out and do that. And my body will gradually get used to it and therefore eventually I'll be that good. Um, some people that were capable of that, that worked. <laughs> they did it and it was, perhaps in some cases, that was actually their base level. So they were, they were already doing it right. But if you set that intensity as the basis on which you do sessions, uh, if you do at least three quarters of your volume in zone one, and that doesn't mean the very top of zone one, it can be easy stuff, you'll get enough of a training shunt to make progress. And you just then leave it alone. If you want to do high intensity work, if you want to, you know, clearly in the real world measure how much time you don't spend in zone one which clearly Micah said you know I've spent time out of zone one yeah. but most of it I've spent in zone one and uh, and often that means people have had to slow themselves down or pick the training partners or pick the training routes and I think the icing bit when you start to notice you're fitter and then you can race or you can push your intervals harder or you can go searching for where's the icing on that aerobic cake that's good but the need to wait for progression to happen really stems back to am I doing the training in the right zone and if you're not doing it in the right zone it doesn't matter that you think you're pushing your cells further there seems to be this physiological limiter that says don't do more than three quarters of what you do um, over zone one now there may be particular weeks where somebody is actually you know really overloaded done three interval sessions a tempo session but if they've preempted that by months of base work a little bit of going into the next zones that's okay but you can't get fit quick for a long period of time and not realize that all you're doing is icing something that's not going to get any bigger whereas if you build the base the great thing about uh, Mike is, you know, he can now, like he says, he can do routes, which is in the summer, and be interesting to get an email from him in November, December, and say, how's that route going on? Is it gone back to the worst case scenario of, you know, around about the 112, or can you still stay, you know, under 105, but it's a little bit harder to stay in zone one? And for most people, that'd be the case. But you've got to see an annual cycle like that to get this bigger picture. That, oh, right, okay, so. I can't be in a rush for development between October and December, but pretty much when he started from January through to July, if you're doing the hours, if you've got a physiological ability to adapt, and whatever that is, 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 is fairly fixed with people. We know there are um, stronger, weaker responders, which can be fairly genetically measured now. There are certain people that, you know, they do a couple of uh, sessions and suddenly they seem to be, wow, I've adapted really well. Great, you're a, you know, your, your gene profile is such that you respond to training well. And other people that never seem to improve as much as the other, other sort of uh, perhaps lazy trainers or people that don't see the train so often. 
Um, and the good news is, is that that actually gives people the permission to enjoy their training and not to go out the door. As somebody said the other day, yeah, but you know, I know that easy training works, but you know, uh, oh, I'm sure if I push myself harder, I can somehow, you know, overcome it. It's like, no, this is, you know, this is not something I've made up. This is this huge database in loads of endurance sports that says, you know what? The pros aren't training hard all the time. And when they're doing their hard work, boy, oh boy, it's stratospheric what they can do in, in watts or minute miles or, um, or speed in the pool it's it's bonkers but the majority of what they do isn't that hard and that's why they you know can enjoy some days and hate some days that's just them good at what they do but there isn't a particular you know secret session i think that the secret is is that the lazy trainers on easy days will be more effective on their hard days because if you're trying to always push, you know, if you're trying to get to your commute ride quicker each day, well, you're going to hit a threshold point where you're literally doing zone two out the front door. You get to work really, really tired. If you then, you know, decide that sometimes people will do a lunchtime run and they pick up with somebody and do that as a bit of a speed session, you think every day has got zone two stressing it and it starts to become tiring. They're a bit ratty. They don't have that aerobic relaxation. And if the aerobic training works, then so be it. Whether you've whether you've got the ability to adapt to be better and better and better, well the training will do it. And you know, Mike's gone down to 230. He's not probably gonna then go down another 30 minutes and do a 203, but he may well go down to into the 220s through another year's cycle. But there is no way to become um, a Brownlee or a Radcliffe or a Wiggins. You know, that's that's years and and genetic endowment and a career structure, yeah? It's, it's, it's interesting actually, is um, <clears throat> from a point of view of, from obviously yourself that, that knows a little bit about it, um, to someone like like me that just listens to it and still does his training. Um, but you, you make the mistakes and everybody makes the mistakes of going really hard. And then when you come to do the, the ultra hard sessions, you're like, just haven't got it you can't hit those you can't hit those figures um so when you take it back to its simplest form and you're doing your base training you've built that structure for you to 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 build your season on yeah at a certain point you're going to get through that season if you've gone too hard too early or you haven't done the fundamentals you will just go i can't do this and I'm, I'm, I'm i'm really tired um but mike it's nice to have a have a progress report back from from Mike just to see that you know he's listened to what to kind of what Joe's got to say he's listened to what you've got to say and 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 has pushed his training more towards that way even as as a bit of a you know a bit of a ooh, is it is it going to work we'll soon find out mm. you know and given it a try and and clearly he's uh, he's benefited from from that or pretty much off of his own back yeah so you know thumbs up well done yeah um, another question different. This one's from uh, Chris Kidd, and he's he says mainly cycling. Doesn't say um, specifically uh, which um, part of cycling, but he says um, I do quite a bit of uh, road cycling. Could you advise me on the best way to take a drink on the bike? Uh, when I do, I feel out of breath for 20, 30 seconds after. Is this just me? So, what's your first thought on that? I, I I've never. I suppose I haven't really given it that much. I tend to sip my drink anyway, rather than give it, you know, gulp it down. Because normally what happens is if you 
gulping your drink down, it's normally because you haven't sat there and just had a little couple of sips, you know, keep the mouth, keep the mouth a little bit moist and, uh, and you know, just slowly gone through your, your bottles, two bottles maybe, um, as you're going out for your ride. But normally what happens is people grab it at the most in, inopportune minute as well. So it's just, uh, the moment, sorry, is like when you're climbing, you know, the last thought really should be, oh, I need to get a drink down me pretty quick because from where we're to here down in kind of in North Devon the hills are pretty short and sharp so once you're over the top of the hill you're on a nice bit of flat or maybe a little bit of downhill that's the time to just get slowly sipping on your drink but mm. we, we all I think most of us are guilty of just grabbing it and kind of trying to squeeze as much mm. as much down your gullet as possible but you know you kind of drink the, the remainder of your bottle in your last five minutes of your ride whereas really you kind of you should almost be down to that little smidgen bit just to get you get you home or get the last bits of fluid in but I, I think a good tip is just to have occasional sips if you can mainly on flat I mean if you've got the confidence and downhill obviously long straight downhills would be a lot better to do it rather than tight turns but just getting the bottle ready just to have a couple of gentle swigs a little breath in between a couple more swigs pop it back in and and off you go but I think by the sounds of it it's probably trying to trying to gulp down too much air too quickly and remember your nose you can breathe through your nose as well when you're uh, when you're drinking so what I have a tendency to do if I am thirsty or blowing or it's a race then I have a tendency to as I swig I can breathe in through my nose as well and then kind of swallow the you know my mouthful as it would be after that so yeah I, I think it may come back um, possibly Chris to the way you breathe and the um, it's not automatic that people barely breathe and relax. It's not automatic for people to be quite relaxed about uh, being able to perhaps breathe in through their nose, hold a belly breath for a while, breathe back out. Some people are very much top of the chest, Chesty, you know, yeah, yeah. quite tense breathers. Um, and if you're like that, or perhaps you're working a little bit harder than is necessary. I mean, you know, say road cycling, you don't say road racing, don't say on hills, don't say in, you know, uh, fast group rides or club rides or even time trials. So maybe just your, your base work could, could almost stem back to the previous thing of, you know, maybe you're going a little bit hard and then when you try and drink, you're already at a point where that you're so close to being in a, a slight oxygen debt and not relaxed is that you just pick your moments wrong that then stresses you because for 20 to 30 seconds is quite a long time and maybe it is that um, Chris as you pointed out might be drinking for too long and isn't dividing it up into mini um, sips and it's not a tiny sip I think you know a good couple of gulps a good 100 200 mils of, of but kind of relaxed gulping don't panic it's going to go down if you just relax and do it um, don't pick the moments where you're going to rush it pick the moments where you've got clear um, head up of what's going on in front of you that you can relax pick the bottle up um, that you feel relaxed about picking bottles up it's automatic if you've done it for years but for some people it's quite a quite a thing to reach down to try and find it i can close i've tried um safely off off road on cycle traps i've tried to just close my eyes and briefly on a straight bit pedaled reached down and got the bottle and then opened my eyes obviously quickly but i've realized you know what i know where that is i don't need to look i know where it is automatically even with the eyes closed and perhaps he's not doing that perhaps he's you know sort of looking down almost getting a bit um bit bit rushed a bit anxious yeah, about yeah. it um and uh i i think it's fairly common for breathing and drinking not to be in sync because they're they're two separate functions and when you're exercising 
you don't always have to drink, but when you go for um, distances where you definitely need to fuel or you're going to blow up, or it's warm enough you think, I'm starting to get thirsty, I'm already getting a dry throat, I need to drink. Those signals and certainly uh, the fact that most bottle uh, bikes have uh, bottle cages and we're in South Foot Racing now and you know every bike's got a bottle cage on it or a system for hydration. It's not like old school, you know, yesteryear where people said, oh, no, don't drink. It's, it's, it's not just suddenly popped up. Yeah, yeah. or you get a stitch or, you know, it's, it's not good for you. We know that hydration um, works. It can be very simple. It can be complicated. But I think you have to be relaxed in how you do it. You have to make sure you are breathing. You're not working too hard. And maybe just the fact that you can slow everything down and relax means that you don't then rush the next intake of drink because otherwise it, you get into chicken and egg of drink and rush and drink and yeah. rush and most and most of it is from the point of view of you tend to gulp or, or or rush it to the point where you know you are then playing catch up with the breath whereas you can just kind of have a mouthful swallow breathe mouthful swallow and also that then gets you used to the more repetitive you are right the more repetitive you do it the easier it becomes the more natural it becomes and the less you worry about it but yeah it, it's you know it, and it's the same i used to find running and trying to trying to drink whilst running is 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 almost impossible if if you were going for longer distance races you know i used to i used to just try and put a few bottles out and they're easier to run with to kind of drink from a bottle but if you try to drink from like a handout cup mm. um it's impossible you might as well just throw it straight straight in your face pretty much but if on you a get, bike it's easier on the bike yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's easy so it's just getting into that routine of maybe shortening the the, the, the gulps and doing it at the right time i think is probably mm. the better practice for yeah. that so um and uh, a total change of uh direction oh curveball curveball um back on the uh, Twitter feed, which is at Coach Joe Beer. Um, a few months ago, uh, Oliver Saxon asked us about... Ooh, heads. Heads. Something just fell down in the background. Um, Oliver um, Saxon asked us about high nitrate foods. Um, another chap, I think through a question, but certainly through, um, through a, a question from a client about, um, okay, what if um, you know? What if I like different foods, or I don't like be true? If I want to nitrate load, how, how do I do it? And the Australian Institute of Sport produced a fueling for success fact sheet, and they had various vegetables. If you could see how smug, Joe, you do. Look at just they go. Look what I've got. No, I, I, I need to say thank you very much, Australian Institute of Sport. I found this on the web. Whether I was meant to find it on the web, I don't know. But it's um, yeah, it's Australian Government and Sports Commission, and uh, yeah, it was a good um, couple of page paper. Uh, they gave very high rating of uh, content of nitrate to beetroot, beetroot juice. Celery, lettuce, uh, rocket, and spinach. So all those were considered high in uh, in um, uh, nitrates. Um, the high, but not very high ones, were Chinese cabbage, celeriac, endive, endive, leek, parsley, and kohlrabi. I don't know what that is. <laughs> You've made that up. I know it happened. You have. Moderate level was cabbage, dill, turnips, and carrot juice. Low was broccoli, carrot, um, fish and chips, and it's not on there. Uh, cauliflower, cucumber, pumpkin, 
V8 vegetable juice, so there's a specific product there. Um, and very low was asparagus, artichoke, broad beans, green beans, peas, capsicum, tomato, watermelon, tomato, twice in there, um, sweet potato, potato, garlic, onion, eggplants, and mushroom. So the super low ones, you know, forget it. But, you know, your, your beetroots, your celeries, uh, what else, you know, cabbage, um, dill, turnips, carrot juice. And you can see why perhaps we get some people that, that don't respond to it because they routinely, Got you know, most perhaps, of that in their diet yeah, perhaps they eat, yeah, you know, yeah. cabbage in uh, stir fries and in the off season they have it as a, as a vegetable in the winter. They eat perhaps um, leek, a bit of parsley, they, there's only so much parsley you can have. They like the lettuce, they like the rocket, a bit of spinach. Um, and the beetroot and beetroot juice is up there as one of the higher ones, but it's not the only one. Yeah. So um, for those that perhaps want to try um, the loading, as yet, the only one that I've seen put as a, a research study seems to be the beetroot and beetroot juice. But, you know, maybe somebody's going to come along with, um, you know, a sort of... Uh, a nitrate vegetable juice that's got, you know, celery and beetroot and all manner of things. And uh, yeah, I'm not a celery or a celery um, liker, but there's people that don't like beetroot. Yeah. But just to give an overall um, kind of ballpark figure, you can't do it if you're trying to have, you know, broad beans or peas or asparagus or tomatoes or sweet potatoes. So there's certain things that, that won't help because they've got less than 200 milligrams, um, and this is per kilogram of, of the fresh vegetable. But the very high ones, over two and a half thousand milligrams, the one that appears to be um, not in vogue, but easier for people and certainly fairly popular is, um, is beetroot. Hmm. Well, we, we, we do quite well with, with the beetroot. We tried and tested it as well with, with the guys that ride for us and you know people that we know through, uh, through Joe. So, you know, and, and beat it. Uh, have all been it's all been sanctioned as well by the Institute of Sport so yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, something tried but it's fantastic for other people that don't like the uh, the taste of beetroot so hmm. top notch and find I that. think there's something else um, separate to nitrate that seems to be um, there's a they're going down a route of trying something um, different not not nitrates but another you know there's always somebody looking for a nutrient and we know that the beetroot some people respond really well. It's not just a placebo; they respond. But of course, they might be the ones that just keep away from the foods that are normally, you know, they don't like celery, they don't like lettuce, but they love, you know, the tomatoes and the broad beans and the stuff that's at the lower levels. But of course, those haven't got the nitrate. So you you'd have to literally deplete somebody for a very long time to say, right, let's start everybody at low level zero response. Um, and because of the uh, research on the the health implications of it helping um certainly blood flow there seems to be a lot of people that respond to it it's just whether or not you want to have the um the beetroot juice or not i don't think there's many people that don't notice much of an effect but maybe the percentage responders that have really good performance from it are just the ones with it, an existing low nitrate diet and the ones that say mm, i'm not really convinced we're just already eating quite a bit of it, so That's the thing. you know. And it also, with the, with reference to that study as well, um, you know, the the beans and everything might be low in nitrate, but they're you know they're 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 high. They're part of a good kind of mixed diet as well. So yeah. Okay. This is a question. So this is from um, from Ian Brogdon, who 
did our um, iTunes um, little review that we read earlier. He's a time trialist and he says, uh, hi Joe Martin. Um, I'm recently back to a structured training program for time trialing um, and this includes a weekly, um, he calls it a, a finny interval session of about 90 minutes duration including 20 minutes warm up and cool down. Um, I do this session on a watt bike which is ideal uh, due to uh, childcare arrangements and uh, and the watt bikes at a local gym uh, where the kids can be in the kids club. So the ambient temperature in the gym is quite high, 20 degrees C, there's no air movement or cooling. Um, the temperature in my back pocket measured by my Garmin reaches 29 degrees during the session. So I'm guessing my core temperature is very high. Um, my heart rate can be 10 mile pace level um, while I'm actually 50 watts below that um, and there's a substantial fluid loss through sweating. Um, I drink one and a half litres of water during the session but still dehydrated and thirsty for the rest of the evening. Um, I'm also left with sore eyes for a couple of days to rec um, uh, and recover plus my kit is totally soaked. Uh, I understand that when training indoors with no fan a superheated pocket of air forms around the body and this can cause overheating. The solution would be to install a fan, but the gym have so far not found this simple resolution possible. Um, so a few questions arising from this. Number one, and let's answer them in order so we, we kind of go back to his questions. Should I continue with this session or is it counterproductive? And I don't think it's counterproductive. No, I, I think it's about it's... I think it's about the environment. Yeah. So I think you you know you continue but you try to make the environment work for you. Sound right? Yeah, that's it. Uh, most of the guys at the gym are normally pretty good. If you can kind of, I mean, I, there have been incidents when I've I've been in the gym in winter training, and someone's walk, someone has walked in with a fan before because yeah. one one guy likes to do quite a long session on the running machine. Mm. Um, they've got to be careful because of their laws, insurance, etc., yeah. etc. Et yeah. um, and actually, one of the gym member staff said, "Look, you can't use it," and he just was like, "Well, you know, I will." sweat I'll, I'll get sweat everywhere and you know fair dues she was pretty good she went and got him a fan and just said look you know if that helps then yeah. brilliant but yeah you, you're kind of i don't think it will be i don't think this the um the actual training session is a waste at all hmm. so no i i think like you said you just got to make the kids and that, that was one of my things was, was was take your own was question mark then i thought well they'd have to get their electricity tested yeah, yeah, so it. number two um how can i measure um core body temperature during the session and he says in brackets preferably not rectal um and you know get i don't think they'll like it either no they like it no. just gonna check my temperature if anyone wants to look away uh i thought about an ear sensor which is you know a simple thing you can do with kids and that seems to pick up increasing temperature when kids have got like a fever and adults got a fever but that won't tell you about the um you know the core temperature um and so I think, you know, you, you've got to do something perhaps indirectly. Use, you know, an ear-based one. Will that help? But also, if you know that you're going to get an increase of core temperature, without sounding a bit blasé, if you can survive the session and the rest of the advice we give helps you do that, then the fact your core temperature goes up, there's lots of instances where core temperature goes up in races, in hot training sessions, 
in situations where the um, humidity and the lack of air movement means people get really, really hot. But I don't know that you necessarily have to measure it. And you have had this situation where um, now we've got these um, people pop a, um, uh, pop a, a pill which measures the temperature and while it's going down through their system you can get a core temperature for a while and you've got to time that right and you've got to then um, uh, recycle it afterwards and make sure you uh, you get the system back out um, and I don't think that's the level to which people need to well yeah that, that's what I was, I was going to say is with, with reference to measuring core temperatures is, is it is it a measurement that is needed that is a specific to that session or b will it make that session the information you get from that session so is this part two a and b you're not giving me i don't know (laughs) (laughs) well of course it's it's a it's a factor in a session if you know you're going to get hot core temperature go up but maybe if you'd start the session you measure ear temperature and you know you're at 35.9 and you finish it at you know 37.2 37.2 okay you know you've gone up about a degree even in your ear which is um going to suggest that you've got hotter but you know that anyway and i don't know unless unless for some reason you're having severe physical problems at the end of it i don't know that anything more than just an approximate increase of what's going on is is you know it would be interesting i've done the um years and years years ago the you know the increase or decrease in core temperature through the uh you know the the rectal probe uh, version. You know, sit in a sit in a cold bath for forty minutes and try and see how far your core temperature goes down. Oh, thank God you said core temperature. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, right, let's get to part three, okay. which is what is the best way to ensure I'm properly rehydrated after the session? And I think first we've got to go back to what he said. It may have been just a typo. It may have been the way he did it. He said one and a half liters of water. Okay, if you're going into a hot session where you know sweat rate's going high, at the very least you need to have a zero calorie electrolyte um, tablet. You're on that session for 90 minutes with intervals, so you need carbs. So you need a carb electrolyte drink that works for you, and you also need to have that cool so that as you're drinking it, it's acting as a heat sink in your gut. Uh, you're drinking one and a half litres and if you're, yes, you're going to feel a bit dehydrated, but you're thirsty for the rest of the evening. And my thought is that sounds like he might be drinking water. If he's drinking water, it's not really acting very effectively to properly rehydrate. And if you go back to the beginning of the session, I think it's what you do as you get in there. And and if you could, if you could do the perfect session, um, I think you have a, like an ice slush puppy or something like that. Even if it takes a little bit of a detour from the gym or you've made a drink and it worked, you can store it in a fridge or you go from home that day and you've had this ice drink. If you can get yourself cooler on the inside before you start, if your drink is cooled and has got carbohydrate and electrolytes, that's helping you in some way. But it's it's still how much of the environment in the gym is working against you. That's what I was going to say. It, it, it's not possible all the time, but um, you can get things like cool towels or ice towels. Yeah. Um, I know one of the brands we deal with, uh, Mockoff, do a do an ice towel. So you can actually put them into the, the fridge, into the freezer, um, and, and take them out. But again, depending on... Depending on your time, you know, mm. by the time you get it out of the freezer, put it in your bag, go to the uh, gym... The gym might, have a, gym might have a freezer and yeah. you chucked it in there, you've been in there the day before, chuck it in there and say, is it all right if I store that? I want to use it tomorrow. And you, you, there has been a fair bit of research and a bit of usage of people wearing these, it's like a towel with an ice core and they tie it around their neck that's like right. a neckerchief and it sits there cooling the back of the neck and that's effective. But 
you're starting to make a session be quite difficult for the preparation of doing it. And it may be that either you have to shorten that session because 90 minutes is just too long a period to spend in that environment. Um, or as he's already asked us in one, two, three, but now he's asking us in four, is there a way to keep the core temperature down other than a fan? And I think it is just all of the above, the ice drink, the cold liquids, you know, perhaps minimal, um, you know, you don't, just because you're on a, a watt bike, you don't have to sit in there and bike kit. You could have a minimal base layer that's really um, like uh, a light, uh, really kind of feels airy bike shorts but the ones that have got really mesh like um, yeah. bibs on them and um, and don't wear too much in the last few hours before that session if you're if you're really hot and you get to the gym you're going to be really hot when you start that session so if, if you if you can and some people in their jobs like you guys that work in the shop you can walk around in shorts so you'll be cooler than somebody that has to stay in Perhaps suit. a suit yeah, yeah, um, or in a shop all day or in an office all day where they're quite um, warm anyway. And they get to the gym and think, by me, I've not had at all any cool uh, movement of air. And I think it, you know, it does, it does suggest that um, there is a substantial fluid loss. Um, he is sweating. He is getting hot. You could look into, you know, are you losing excessive amounts of sodium? And you're one of those real high, um, like white chalky deposits on black shorts maybe then we got to a situation where after many months of training <clears throat> excuse me the effectiveness of his hydration is being affected by the fact that he needs a lot more salt in his drink otherwise the rate at which fluid is going through his body is too excessive and if he's only drinking water it could make it worse well that's the thing i i mean i i, I don't know i'll ask you the question i suppose uh, with this is with reference to water does water just kind of sit it gets absorbed by the stomach, doesn't it? But or into the body. But will it be a faster rate of absorption if you've got things like a carbohydrate or an electrolyte drink? Would you would you know that off the top, the top of your head? How do with you mean? That, as in, will the body utilise it better and quicker because it's got something to grab onto rather yeah, than just yeah, the water? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> plain water um, is certainly at high levels of, of sweat rate is. It's not totally ineffective, but it's not as good as um, as something's got a small amount of sodium in there. And for some people that are sweating um, excessive sodium, you may need quite a bit in there. And it, it may not build up sometimes in most people's training, so they don't really think they need to um, make a, uh, an issue of it. And, oh, well, plain water will do. Well, at the very least, I think there should be carbohydrate in there because it's a 90-minute session. It's probably happening later on in the day because he's um, you know, talking about um, childcare is happening after um, after you know work or school or it's happening at the weekends. But to have electrolytes in there helps the uptake of fluid. We know that, and you've got to be losing quite a significant amount if um, if his core temperature is going up. If you measured before and after sweat rates, there's always going to be a loss. You don't need to think, yeah. I've got to drink as much as I'm sweating because it just could be intolerable, particularly he's going in there to do intervals. So he doesn't want to try and have maximum fluid intake during maximum effort. But cold liquids during recoveries, cold liquids before and immediately after the session just mean that you're, you know, your body's not put under both the training load and an excessive thermal load. Getting hot is quite good, but there's still a limit as to how good good is. And if you don't want to 
go into a session because you think I'm just going to get so hot that the workload that I do is actually now below par. He doesn't want to do just getting hot work. He's trying to go in there to do intervals. It doesn't sound like because he's a time trialist and I know Ian, he's not training for something that's excessively hot. So it's not right, go into a really hot environment that's sort of 30 degrees and work at a low to moderate level and that'll help your acclimation to heat. He's going in there because it's an indoor session that works well for his, you know, child Personal test situation. Yeah, yeah. And but he's still wanting the quality of the session to override the heat effect. And so he's sort of dealing with a factor that isn't ideal, but probably can um, preempt with hydration, can ensure that he does use electrolytes and carbohydrate. And, um, and like you say, you know, ice cores and things like that. And just see to what extent, even if the gym's got an additional fan, that the scope of that session should not be limited by you getting excessively hot. And, and also another thing is look at your equipment positioning. They might have 20 watt bikes and you kind of go, oh, I quite like the one right down near the window. Well, it would actually be better to be closer to the aircon unit, as bad as that as aircon is really, but it's, it's you know, it's cool. It's a it, it's cooler way to, to, to ride, but I think the biggest difference would be uh, a water bottle, maybe two water bottles or three water bottles, two of them maybe frozen, have been frozen you know, at work or during the day, you've taken out, um, I don't know, half an hour before your session, um, they're starting to melt as well. And then one one bottle with, with just water in and then, yeah, electrolytes and, and carbohydrate with that. Um, also a damp, cold towel. Very and simple. It's just a simple way yeah. of doing it. You can have a dry towel and you can have a, a damp, cold towel that you could actually put on you after you've done your interval just to cool down mm. um, and then take it off again and then go for your your interval session that's if i have to use the turbo uh, at home that's what i do i just have a soaking wet cold towel mm. that i've i've run under the tap in the cold uh, cold tap for a bit wrung it out then taken it in and just hung it up um, obviously it doesn't have to be dripping wet mm. um, and just swung it kind of around my neck over my mm. shoulders tucked it into my, my base layer just to kind get of a great image down. by the way it's <laughs> not yeah. I can imagine someone breaking into my garage going there's a there's a very poorly dressed man on what I can only <clears throat> describe as an adult hamster wheel um, but a great question yeah. oh fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. and it, it must relate to other people that are doing um, longer spin classes or indoor treadmill runs or they're doing you know a, a cross training session where they do some running some treadmill some bikes and weights and they're in a hot environment not all gyms are, are perfectly you know air and kept to the optimum temperature and they don't necessarily have movement you can see why it is attractive to go outside and to get you know blown around and get wind on you and rain because you actually have a cooling effect but there's that sweet spot between you know what is realistic for your personal circumstance and what you just like because it's outdoors versus inside you can be um, very time efficient and can sometimes work in, uh, in in better ways with regards to being at home or being in a, uh, a gym or having nearby um, childcare or even just your work nearer to hand but that could limit how much you can stay cool but great question yeah fantastic uh, this was a um, this was actually a, a Facebook um, post yeah Facebook post uh, and it was from uh, Till Meister and um, it's quite, it's not complicated, but you need a pen and paper to, to follow some of this, but I'll jump to my answer at the end and then try and explain what the person is, is saying. Um, this chap said, hi Joe, could you briefly explain the benefits of calculating heart rate training zones based on heart rate max? 
and not lactate threshold heart rate. I find it quite amusing, by the way, that at least in Germany, there are another set of zones. Zone one, and he calls it KB, um, is less than 70% of lactate threshold. Okay, zone two is 70 to 85% of lactate threshold. Zone three is 85 to 95% of lactate threshold. Zone four is 95 to 105% of lactate threshold, or probably is what we'd call lactate threshold because it's plus or minus a small amount. And zone five is greater than 105% of lactate threshold. And he says, works for me. Okay, so we've got the five zones, which are probably not dissimilar to a lot of people's five zones. But when you're talking about a percentage of um, lactate threshold, for most people that would represent about, and I'm going to say about because it will vary, uh, it will represent something about 85 to possibly close to 90% of heart rate max. Some people might be above 90%, but that's not... It's not always going to be the case, and of course, some people will say, "Oh, I'm sure I must be fit. I must be having a you know lactate threshold of at least ninety percent of my maximum." Your lactate threshold um, will be at or around what you can sustain for um, for one hour. And I responded back um, to Till by saying, um, "Yes, Till. Um, there are lots of different training zone systems. I am merely using the simplest for people to execute, especially." in adhering to the major principle of endurance training that's been recognized over the past two decades, namely that greater than 75% of volume of the training is less than 80% of um, max heart rate. Um, or in his case, uh, KB, GA1 and GA2 zones. So his first three zones, when you, when you work them back from his lactate threshold are actually what we call zone one. They're just varying levels of effort, okay? okay? Um, and I will answer in full in the next podcast. And I think, the, the major point of his thing is, um, you know, why not um, measure it based on lactate threshold heart rate? Well, firstly, that varies quite a bit depending on what part of the year you're on. And if you start varying your training zones just on where your form is, then what you can start to do is complicate something that, well, okay, how do you find your lactate threshold then? Well, you've got to, if you want to do it properly, you've got to go and be lactate tested. If you're going to actually define where your lactate threshold is, you need to go into a lab, you need to have somebody take you through progressive increments, which if you know where it was last time, you can probably be quite close and they can hone in on that area, but it's still travel, cost. And for a lot of people, it's getting pretty complicated to find something that whilst there is an off-season um, reduction in somebody's threshold, um, we don't simply then start recalculating their zones. So I think why, you know, why use um, maximum heart rate instead of lactate threshold? Um, because lactate threshold is, is difficult to, um, to assess easily. Um, it takes some kind of input, which is fine if you're on a you know, sports science degree and you're doing loads of tests and people can give you lactate thresholds, or you buy a system to take your lactate. But it's confusing because what it then pinpoints to is that you're trying to calculate your zones from your current form, whereas we don't, we don't specifically um, identify that if your training is going to be effective, you have to know your lactate threshold and therefore know your zones. What we know is three quarters of the training volume has to be in zone one. Your zone one is unlikely to change as much as where your lactate threshold is. And when we take somebody's data and they go and have a max test and then you look at it after and say, oh yeah, look, there's your um, anaerobic threshold. 
oh look, and your zone one is there. And that difference is often their anaerobic threshold, maybe say 86%. So their top of zone one is 80%. It's about 6% lower in heart rate terms. But that's the top of zone one, not where the specific training point is for base training. Nothing in the research or the anecdoted uh, diaries has ever found that there's a waste of time point in that base training. Um, the zone one, has got three divisions within his five zone um, system, which means, yes, you can have some where you say, oh, I went, I went, you know, it was a lower effort. I was down in, um, you know, Z1, it was less than 70% of my lactate threshold, which is like somebody saying, oh, I did an easy base session. It was quite low heart rate, which may be 60 to 65% heart rate. So it's exactly the end product is the same. It's just where you get that number from. And I think the lactate, um, function as the be all and end of how to measure everything diverts the attention away from you know what your maximum heart rate is probably a more stable measure longer term and your form where exactly your threshold is only really determines what you'll be able to do without going pop it won't change where your base level is so would you say if you went for instance with lactate using lactate as a, as a measure, yeah. you, would you have to do an increase in retests? Well, you've got to wonder how often would you therefore retest? That's, that's because, the thing, yeah. you know, we, we know the in-season, off-season variance in people's performance, but lots of people are able to perceive that in the training that they do. You set them, you know, an interval session that gets them above lactate threshold. So within, you know, TIL system, um, you're certainly um, talking at least uh, Z4, which is 95 to 100, 105% lactate threshold, but more importantly, zone five, which is 5% above your lactate threshold. So that's kind of 10 RTT, 5K pace, you know, hard efforts where there's a buildable lactate. Because if you're saying it's above lactate threshold, that means that the amount of time you can spend there is limited. It's limited, it's limited. Yeah. And how much of that you have to do depends on where you are in the season. So you could understand that somebody might want to know where their zones are, but often people, certainly after a, a few years of training and racing is that they kind of know that yeah i can't go straight into my peak form efforts because i get to that heart rate and my legs can't can't do it for too long my 5k goes pop after 2k but as they get better at pace judgment they can say oh i can get up to 4k now and i've just got to get that last k done because i can see my heart rate is, is under control but if you need to reassess that by going to a lab and always lactate testing you're not doing what most people are actually quite good at doing which is assessing their own progress by what they're getting back from their efforts they do their efforts they say god that's really hard work how do i do that in the summer and then they fast forward four months they've progressed they've got used to you know working above threshold they've got used to knowing where their sweet spot is Four months later and say this is a piece of cake to hold this and there are of course various ways to do that and i, I think we're, we're both saying the same thing i just think that lactate testing is um a a very very complicated way of getting to the same point and it's also not what a lot of people then can refer to whereas at least with heart rate max you've got that even if your perception of effort and what you can do varies at say 85 percent of heart rate max that is something you can readily make an, ass an, um, an assessment of. You don't need to say, oh, I've got a book in to find out whether my fitness is up or down, whereas people know it. And this guy earlier on, when we were talking about his heart rate and his thing, he's getting feedback directly from training sessions that says, wow, 
same heart rate, going faster, brilliant. And that will automatically relate to not only zone one, but zone two, zone three, and all the way up. Because also with that, I suppose as well, is, is you get that, you get that training effect, that feeling, like you said, that you're getting better at it. Um, but if people couldn't go to a lab and do lactate testing um, and, and have that option, then it then becomes, surely it becomes guesswork. Yeah. You have to have yeah. it done properly. There's yeah. no, yeah. whereas your max heart rate is something that you can visibly see, well, like I said, with a, with a heart rate monitor. But I think now with all the equipment that we've got, we lose that little bit of pace judgment, that little mm. bit of effort judgment, mm. because we're so fixated on having yeah. these tests and, yeah. and doing yeah. it. And a test in the lab can sometimes be different depending on has somebody really tapered for it? Are they, you know, are they trying to, are they trying to produce good figures for people that are watching? Yeah. And therefore they, you know, they've, okay, you can't necessarily change your lactate level just by mentally going, oh, I'm going to make this a good one. But you may have like really um, peaked for a lactate test or, which is just trying to assess where, you, where your zones are. And the zones aren't going to vary that much based on the lactate test. Your, your threshold could be dropping down to quite um, a low level in terms of you know 82% or 83%. If you haven't trained much, if you've definitely not been um, very good at going back to base training, because every time you go on training, you've pushed yourself too hard because you haven't been training much. And lo and behold, it just tells you when you try and push at the old levels that blimey, I'm going pop early. And I think the more that somebody can refer back to how I feel and heart rate, which are two things immediately available, is much better information feedback loop with which speed of what you can determine in today's session for tomorrow's session for tomorrow's race is so much more responsive than somebody that says, yeah, but I better go and check whether my threshold's yeah. moved. Okay. Because you know you know when you're on good form, and I can see it with people and they say, Blimey, yeah, look, we know you can eke out every last bit because of the, you know, the 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 speed at a particular level. And though lactate is a you know is a is a measure of what's going on and it will determine um, zones um, through a slightly different um, uh, method of measuring that particular increase and then sudden increase in lactate but it's it's I think a complicated way about and the zone stuff from a simplistic max test that may be repeated to just check that somebody has got the right max data but I think you can always use race data and max data to confirm one another, even nose breathing data to say, yeah, we've got your zones right. Whereas with a lactate, you're always dependent on going back and checking whether that person did it right. I've had lactate tests that I'm sure have been iffy where somebody's, you're doing a, a time trial and um, I remember somebody measuring and it was like, it was like something bonkers, like 10 millimoles that I was holding for 15 minutes. And he's like, blimey, I've never seen this data before. And I was like, well, I know I produce a lot of lactate and I've had really high lactate measures of, I think, 19 in a max test. But even those numbers made me wonder, well, is that data just like dodgy? And therefore, it's something that each lactate test system might come up with something different. Something different, yeah. Whereas a max heart rate is a max heart rate. It very, you know, it, it, it varies a little bit but you don't have to think is that test strip that's just measured my lactate right or wrong or is the data not quite precise it just seems an expensive complicated way to get to something that we can get you know easier through a max test or through taking race data and saying well you might you might find that what you do in you know in, in june just feels really really hard to do in in january because of where that pushes you in your oh, zones 
but that's what we know anyway to do with your form. And there are varying systems up to a 10 zone level, but given that most people want to train effective, but not turn it into a real, a really difficult process of, you know, how do I stay precisely at that level? The zone one, zone two, zone three, as the sports scientists divide, um, sorry, define, which is up to 80%, 80 to about 87%, and then the highest workload is above about 87%, that seems to work. And it's not, it's not you know, a, um, a sort of a too simplistic a method, but it just gives people where you're meant to be. If you're up in zone three and you're meant to be in zone one, well, that's that person's application of effort completely wrong. That's right. And if you're up a zone one because it's a quick tempo session and you're trying to get ready for you know some racing where you want quick tempo but you don't want to actually technically be racing, well, that's okay. If you're on an easy day and you stay right at the low zone one and you bimble along, that's okay. But it's are the proportions correct and whether or not you're actually... Um, just above or just below threshold only really matters based on what your muscles tell you when you're meant to be racing above or below it actually in, in real time training a lot of what you do and you must find this a lot of what you do has got nothing to do with where your threshold is you're just bimbling along doing your technical mountain biking or if you're doing running you're just you know doing that that base work and to focus upon the threshold is almost coming back to this idea that that's the place where we've got to be or that that's the thing that we've got to measure. That, and I know very effective athletes that have never been anywhere near a lactate test. They can tell you how their sweet spot is for a one hour effort. They can tell you where their intervals are, where they go into the red, and they can tell you where their base is. But to throw a number in to reconfirm that through um, a quite expensive sometimes test that they have to go to a lab, I think is just making it too complicated. It's a cracking question though. Oh, it's brilliant. And I think, you know, the method works for him. So if Till gets his proportions in, um, you know, what he talks of is, you know, uh, Z1 KB, Z2 um, GA1 and, and Z3 um, GA2, etc. If he gets his proportion right, it works great. Um, if he can get lactate testing fairly, um, Readily. Fairly readily, and also he understands it, that's good. But a lot of people, they kind of understand where threshold is, but you don't want to start talking to them about, you know, that the top of uh, zone one is a two millimole point, the top of uh, zone uh, two is about the, um, about four, maybe just thereabouts. And when you get into zone three, you're talking five, six, seven, eight. And like I said, in a max test, you're talking about, you know, 15 millimole. If you start having that, they're like, yeah, but what does that mean when I'm actually out riding? Where, where does this millimole come in? Right. Oh yeah. You've got to be in a lab to do that. That's it. So it's, um, I can't think of a good example where there's a similar kind of way of doing things exactly the same way. But to me, it's, it's measuring something that the, you know, the, uh, the research, I'm really interested in it. And I've, and I've got loads of things where I've you know, been tested and you see these lactate up switches and you can see it pitching up, you can see a max, you can see it after a max coming down progressively every, you know, do a max and then do a, a lactate every few minutes afterwards to see it come down and how long it takes and stuff. And that's all interesting, but it's not something we can do um, readily real time. There are these systems now, I don't know if you've seen where you can put something on your um, leg muscle and it can give um, an assessment of lactate in real time. Now, perhaps we're in an era where that will start to be something that people use yeah. or that that will make um, that will make for the very serious athlete looking for the last little 
um, increment of progression that that is is a worthwhile investment but for most people you know find out your max assess roughly where your threshold is and therefore where you convert from being able to accommodate the lactate to actually going into the red and make sure if you're going to be doing base work you don't find yourself in zone three accidentally and um, that's quite a simple way of doing it but you get good results from simplicity and some people will be turned off if they have to start talking about lactate or buying a you know 200 300 pound um, uh, calf um, coverage system that in real time sends lactate numbers to some you know that's, different device it's, it's, it's so complicated well, and and it's what again it's what you do with that information like if you have a heart rate power meter you know measure lactate it's what you choose to do with that information if you can't decipher it there's no point in having it whatsoever but most people can learn how to decipher it but the easiest way is like you said heart rate and max pretty much so yeah. But yeah, it's good. I yeah. Like that. We've got um we've got a question from Richard Young, but we're going to do that next time for the very reason that it's so long, both Crocker and I need to have read it and we need to praise it because um it's it's really long, there's lots of data, and I think it'll be um interesting and I think it's um it's kind of one of those um instances where the the, the need to be able to get not all the numbers and facts, but the need to be able to tease out what the question is asking, is asking, yeah. and how it how it's diluted down to this, this, and this. There's great, you know, there's great um, uh, keenness in in people's uh, data and so forth. But what we don't want to do is give a uh, a quick question to something that's actually quite um, a long-winded uh, uh, approach to maybe we could say, ah, we're going to simplify this question, and this is how it is. Anyway, we've In got... other words, what Joe's trying to say is he's going to try and explain it to me. Yeah, trying to explain it to you. Yeah. <laughs> we pick the bones out of it. Yeah. Um, just a few pieces of um, updates on, uh, I guess, just, just research things that I, I picked up on. There is one, and for the life of me, I'm trying to find it. I've seen it, I've read it, and it's disappeared. I don't know whether it's on, a, on one of my computers or whether it's under a different name, but there was something interesting that came out about interval training and how effectively the interval recovery is not super important to the effect of the intervals as such. I need to give you the exact details of that, but um, I had an instance where a swimmer was trying to do um, a certain set given to him by um, a, a very good swim coach. And um, because this athlete is quite an anaerobic sprint athlete, um, given that he was working at a high rate for 100 meters, the two minute rest was not enough for him to recover. So as he did his effective 140, 135, 130 per 100 meters improvement, um, he eventually ran out of steam. And it wasn't really down to the fact that he couldn't do the 130, it was down to the fact that the two minutes was not enough to recover. And there does seem to be this three minute period that is the, the, the right amount of time to get a full aerobic recovery. And the funny thing was, is when he did one of his last 130s but he was given an extra minute to recover he was now given three minutes he could do it and that exactly aligned with what i said which you need three minutes if you're working very hard you need three minutes to dissipate that lactate which comes back into the previous question lactate's out there but we've got to we've got to know what it's doing rather than see it always as the answer but if that lactate can dissipate enough over the three minutes you can do something that was not possible if you only gave that athlete two minutes if you're talking an eight second sprint, 
that somebody does. Like um, I like cyclists to do it. I like runners to do it. I like people to do it in the pool where they swim for a bit, do eight seconds really fast and then recover. If you do that eight second effort, because you're not going for long enough, you don't build up lactate. You recharge that particular um, ATP CP system in the next two minutes. So you can do those kind of efforts on a two minute recovery. What you can't do is the really hard, um, if you like, lactate producing ones on a two minute recovery. And there's this, you know, general idea of, you know, you have 50% of the interval time is what you want for your sweet spot of recovery time. And actually it appears that the interval time should just allow you to do the next rep. And sometimes if you trim back the intervals, you're starting to put so much together in a short space of time that if you fail to do the intervals, you're missing the point. Get the intervals done at first, even if it's on a longer rest. Because if you do them on a longer rest, you're still doing them. And maybe you could eventually trim the rest down. But the rest interval doesn't automatically make that a special session. It's when you're working, are you doing the set work? And and again, like you said, this goes down to making sure your measurement is correct as well. Because I take the view, or I used to take the view, that you did a specific interval and then you had a set amount of, of recovery. Now that set amount of recovery was there because you then, if you started the next interval tired, this was building up some form of resistance, but you then missed the point that you're really struggling to hold if you can hold at all, you know, your fourth or fifth interval. But well, the truth of the matter is really is the quality in the interval is the biggest thing yeah. that, that makes the difference. So you're actually better off if it's a four minute interval, doing your four minute interval and then having to have two minutes as your recovery time, but you're thinking, well, that second interval, you're then struggling going, I don't know, I found found really hard to hit. And that's what intervals are. They're really, they're they're, they're there to test you. Mm. But, you know, if you have to take a three-minute rest to be able to do it, or four minutes, it doesn't matter as long as you're doing that quality interval and you're hitting those figures, you know, especially if you're going flat out as well for, I don't know, minute, minute and a Mm. half, two minutes, or building to, to two minutes. If you've got to have two minutes off or four minutes off to then repeat that for mm. another four mm. or five times to get that quality, mm. you'll get the reward. And it, it depends on how that quality is. If you're working at a pace that is at threshold, well, you're not incurring a level of lactate accumulation because yeah. you're at threshold. You are in the accommodative zone. You're accommodating it. You have a brief rest and then you go back into the accommodation zone again and you're okay. But when you go into into zone three where you are accumulating lactate because you're working over and above what you could sustain um, for an hour, you're going into the red zone, you could even be doing an absolute time trial. The the data that is is readily available and it it talks about different um, national governing bodies and the kind of intervals that their athletes seem to do. And what you see is they're pretty generous on their recoveries. They don't really, they're not always on a one minute interval of rest, even if they're going, you know, moderately hard. Oh, they've only got one minute of rest because they're an elite. They give them enough rest to repeat the effort as it's meant to be. And if the effort is meant to be four minutes in a real heavy situation that they couldn't actually do for maybe even eight minutes, they're literally doing their best four minutes. Well, don't give them two minutes to recover because they won't be able to do it. So I think um, it's one of those things whereby the scrimping of recovery is missing the point about what you're trying to do. You're trying to do good workloads. You're not trying to cut the recovery down anymore 
that doesn't seem to be the way to do it. There might be certain sessions where people say, yeah, I work at this level and I have 50%. So I work for four minutes and I have two minutes off. Okay, what level are you working at for four minutes? Oh, I'm about threshold, but that's okay. The two minutes off is nice, but you didn't need the two minutes no. off because at threshold, technically, you could have kept going for another 56 minutes. Yeah. Okay, you, your muscles need to be used to going for that long because that's say you know, you might be using... Um, uh, Workload-wise, if we, if we take wattage on a bike, you might be working at 75 to 78% of your peak power. But you can do that and jump in and out of that zone for another hour. So the, the, the four minutes wasn't really hard. But if you do four minutes above your, you know, above your 10-mile TT pace, you're actually doing four minutes where the fifth minute could be where you went pop. But you never, you never quite pop. You do four minutes and you're on, you're on top of it, but you wouldn't want to be doing, you know, 40 minutes at it. You need a long rest because you've incurred so much lactate. The limiting factor is the lactate increase. And if the lactate increases and increases and increases and you don't make the successive workloads, unless you're trying to break yourself to see whether that's possible, you're overdoing it. There seems to be this sweet spot that, you know, you can work hard and you get an effect. But if you work too hard or have too little a recovery you're actually missing the point you're trying to cram too much into it and i think it, it it's interesting because it, it suggests that there's always a right way to do things that is productive and a wrong way where you're just actually not getting the results for the work that you're doing and ultimately it would just go to to fatigue wouldn't it and most of it would just be well, and mentally if you can't you know, if somebody says i want you to do five lots of four minutes and you can't get that done and you know you can't get it done you are this person couldn't do Despite motivation, despite being a, a really experienced um, endurance athlete um, that pushes himself, if he can't get that rep done, but somebody gives him an extra minute and he can get it done, tells you something about what the key factor is. That person, particularly with, we know their, their um, we even know their gene profile, it's, they're that into it, yeah. that that person is, is, is very much towards a kind of background from a sprint level, still is endurance capable, still has done Ironman, but is definitely towards the sprint capabilities. His muscles probably produce lactate very well because they're good at high power, but you need to give that athlete the recovery to do that all over yeah. again. And interestingly, even in a sprint race, particularly if they're saying out and back, they walk briefly because they need to get that aerobic refix at the um, turn point and they run back faster than they could because they almost need this respite. That's such sweet spot of, if they incur lactate, wow, that's it, they slow right down. Yeah. Give them that brief respite and they're faster than they were. So it looks like, why is that bloke, you know, why is that bloke slowing down? Slow down, brief rest bite, they finish off better than some. It's like, I've got to keep pushing, got to keep pushing, got to keep pushing. Um, where that amount of um, recovery time is, you know, there's obviously an optimum, can't be every kilometer, Why you take a long time to get through 5K. But I, I think it hones into that there's these certain spaces of, of work and rest and effort that you've got to negotiate them to find out what somebody can do. But you can definitely scrimp on recovery time and it be detrimental to what you want to do, particularly if you're going up into zone three or as, as before um, on uh, Till's uh, question, what he would call um, zone five, where you're 105% of lactate threshold or above. If you're above lactate threshold, that tells you you are accumulating lactate. That is why in the systems that I talk about, zone three, they call it, you know, the accumulation zone. You're in the red zone. There's only so long you can stay in yeah, there yeah. before it accumulates. And no matter what somebody's willpower, no matter what somebody's experience, if you stay in there for long enough, you'll go pop. And it'll be pop less than an hour. It could be pop less than two minutes. 
but there's that you know ever decreasing amount of time as the lactate builds up and if you're not on form it builds up quicker and you go pop if you are in form and mentally really up for it you can push it but you can't just push it because you know people overcome their limits and do 110% no there's a physiological system of shutdown that's happening and the best athletes get it right under that sweet spot and they only go into the red when it's time to do so which is you know um in the last few minutes or when it counts because they know there's a recovery um and that i think best illustrated by the feedback about all the different hour records that have gone um since jens voigt's um last winter attempt that you know some people went way too fast and went pop it's like Pro athlete can still go pop and slow down, start off at you know 55k and finish much slower and uh, and go pop. And others that had that sweet spot had it absolutely right and only accelerated when it counted and they knew they could go into the red. But they can't go off the line and go, I'm going to go into the red now for the next hour because they knew exactly how long it was going to last, yeah, yeah. which was an hour. <laughs> Whereas some races, oh, if I go a bit harder here, I might get it under the hour or or I might be able to you know go faster because this course represents an easier way of working at a higher percentage. It's good. It's a good question. It's, well, yeah. it's, well, it's a shame that you you you've lost you've lost it, Mijo. You've lost what? You've lost that bit of uh, uh, that test that you were supposed to find on the computer. It's on the computer somewhere. Hey ho! Um, I'll find the I'll find the uh, the research on intervals. Um, there was one thing that I I wrote down um, for the podcast uh, I wanted to include, which was. Um, the immune effects of massage after exercise, and it was a it was a review, a sort of a whole review of stuff. And um, to to cut through it, they went through studies from 1970 up to 2012. There was uh, 700 uh, uh, publications in different databases, um, but there's only five of those that met the review inclusion criteria. So only five of them out of 700 actually were kind of robust enough to use for their um, data to to not be affected by perhaps um insufficient time insufficient measure of what they were doing so of this you know five studies so a systemic review should be in brackets five so people know how many eventually um was able to say these were really robust studies um and their conclusion uh was um the results said that a positive relationship between uh immunological recovery and post-exercise massage was reported by uh, some of these studies, but not by others. Um, there is preliminary evidence that massage may modulate the immune parameters. So it may help to you know, make the immune system respond better um, when applied after exercise, but more research is needed to confirm this possibility. So it's not an absolute, and I think there are certain uh, anecdotes where people say, oh, I had a massage, and oh, I felt so much better. They don't normally report about it being their immune system. They often just say, oh, my muscles felt better. That, or, yeah. or probably they just sat down, or not even sat down, they were lying down for you know 30 minutes, 40 minutes, however they got for their money after race, and somebody had their hands on them and was rubbing them. And I mean, what a great way to just go, oh, that was a great race, thank you very much for the massage. Um, and it's, um, it's, I think it's, got benefits that we can't measure totally massage very few people report that it was an absolute waste of time some people just don't like they don't like you in your space they don't even like you you know rubbing their muscles to sort of say you know to sort of say oh that's like when we do bike fit that's where your you know your knee joint pivot is and this is where your shoulders some people are very uncomfortable and that's to do with your your personal space and how you you, you feel about you know other people touch you some people love massage and some people say i can't stand that it's horrible it, oh, it makes me give the shivers and yeah. and maybe for some people 
the massage is just great because it's a hands-on, very, you know, very intimate way of just like getting somebody to relax. But, and that's the thing, I think most of it comes from relaxed, being relaxed. Mm. And especially even from the point of view that you've, you've got rid of all that energy as well for the event that you've just done. So there's, there's a, lot more, a lot more people should be into, I think, the, the massage side of it. It doesn't have to be deep and, evas uh, and invasive, invasive into, the, into the muscles and you walk like John Wayne after you've, uh, after you've been there. But it's, you know, there's plenty of other therapies out there that can have the same effect without kind of leaving you crying for uh, uh, crying in, in pain um, because someone's rolled uh, you know a, a, a palm down a, a side of uh, your leg and, and left you feeling uh, a little bit ropey with it but, but yeah worth to try a few anyway and is, is another um, recovery training one which uh, relates to compression and um, it, it sort of is, it's one of those ones where, you know, there's a, there's a practical approach, there's a long enough time and enough people to say, mm, maybe we found something here. And um, I'll read you what this abstract was. And it says about um, sort of excessive explosion, um, <laughs> exposure to the impact acceleration during running um, is associated with an increased running injury rate. So... Um, compressive garments have been speculated to sort of um, reduce this um, impact acceleration. Um, it's unknown whether longer interventions of using it um, would work in running. So they took 40 trained runners in compression or placebo stockings for three weeks. Some people thought they had them and some people did. Um, their perception. How, how do you think, how, how is that done? Well, you just give people something and they pull it on and they don't know whether the compression's right or wrong. And if it's just like something that's very soft, yeah. they just go, oh, those compression things didn't feel well. I've got, whoops, a daisy, I've got, um, I've got compression CEP socks on there. When I've stood up all day doing um, bike fits, I put them on and my legs feel better. And they're hefty things to get on. They really are quite tight. And when you pull them off, you can instantly feel like the blood flow going down into your ankles, which if you stood up, and as on my left leg, I've definitely got more of a varicose vein leg on my left leg. Um, it definitely helps me to keep that at bay. Um, and I feel the difference in running and certainly feel the difference in recovery. So these things can be quite tight and useful, or if they get really sort of slack or they're not meant to be compressive, people pull them on and think they were compression, which gives them that idea of, you know, they're actually having a placebo, but they might perceive it to be yeah, the real yeah. thing. So, um, Perception of comfort, stride parameters such as the rate and length, um, and they also measured impact acceleration um, to do with, um, this was obviously not done during training, but it was done um, in the lab. And they said the compressive stockings reduced uh, uh, tibial peak acceleration and the magnitude compared to the placebo stock, um, stockings at every minute. So when they were measuring them running, they showed that the compression of the stockings um, was um, working. Also, um, it led to um, not only uh, that, that effect, but it also said that as a result, the development of fatigue compared to the placebo stockings, 24% um, versus 26%, was also something that was, um, was a factor that, you know, maybe people don't even necessarily notice that impact bit, but there was just a fatigue sensation and um, similar perceptions of comfort were reported for both garments. So people weren't necessarily, you know, altogether convinced either way what they had on. 
but training with the compression stock in some three weeks reduced the impact acceleration and the rate of the increase in acceleration compared to placebo stockings. These findings suggest that compressive stockings may play a protective role by reducing the impact acceleration during running. And I think that, that you know, that's a long-winded technical way of saying what people feel when they use compression is they just sort of say, yeah, my legs seem to recover better. And I, I even wonder, maybe in an accidental way, maybe it's not, but I wonder way back when David Bedford had his long red socks, whether he was already working out that if he wore long red socks, it just made his legs feel better and he recovered better because they were doing the super high mileage running um, in the 70s. But you see it now, a lot more sports people outside of you know, triathlon and running, um, a lot more other sports people that are impact related starting to use what looks to be tighter compression well guys um, in rugby yeah. use, use the, the you know compression and they yeah. also use obviously accelerometers yeah um to to measure impact as well but their yeah. recovery is massive you know it's, it's hugely important to them and, that, yeah. and that's what they use yeah. a lot of the, the, the squads are on compressions now yeah. as well yeah. and i, th I think there's, there's something in compression it's not just a um it's not just a fad, it's perhaps not fully understood. It's got to work such that the compression is significant enough. It's not just pull on a pair of, you know, cheap uh, cheap socks that uh, from the local market that are just, you know, a pound a pair, and you pull them up and go, well, they're long, they must work. They've got to be fairly high tech. They've got to be um, graduated such that the pressure around the ankle is greater than further up the leg so that they push it up. And they've got to be sized correctly, and they've got to be used at the right time. And, it, it suggests as they hone in and get more specific on the research, it suggests maybe early on, some of it was a bit random in how well the research was controlled. Um, but it seems to be that there is an effect that if you buy good products, if you use them well, you probably will, uh, if nothing else, be able to run more effectively and stay for your injury, level, injury free as stay, well. You know, in, the injury bit is is probably going to work. If you're putting something on, I think you're also starting to get more aware that you can't just run anytime, anything. You're you're a little bit more. Yeah, there are these you know Uber ultra runners that can you know run um, and they um, you know they, they don't seem to get injuries. But um, as per guy that um, that I work with, in particular um, ultra runner, you know, they never run on tarmac. You just run off road, just like that's what I want to run on because that's the stuff that you know is what I'm going to compete on. Yeah, but also, yeah. um, I just get beaten up. And um, this particular person works in agriculture, and when they stop working, you know, straight out and just run across a field and run for you know however long it is that they've got to do. It's quite a, you know quite a kind of what a great way of doing it. And it's quite simple. You put your kit on and off you go. But also it it comes back to why does that work better? Because well, if you're running on softer surfaces and you're changing your angles and you're balancing more from proprioception, you're not standing on you know a flat piece of concrete or tarmac and say, oh yeah, but it's a lot more predictable. I don't twist my ankle, but I can run really, I can run really, you know, kind of like, I think lazily, because they're not 3D. They're just thinking about the fact that they can, you know, not think forward about backwards. it and just yeah. fall forwards and their legs will be okay. But it's that impact that it's still, you know, it's hard and maybe compression can help. 
But it's not, I'll run on harder surfaces and use compression to help me. It's actually, can you run on different surfaces and can you see compression as maybe a recovery tool, maybe something useful when you do um, do uh, road running or run in uh, more um, sort of urban environments where it's harder underfoot. But if you want to find softer surfaces, you can. And if you want to find good compression products, you can. But there are people that don't want to use compression, don't want to think about what they run on, but I think they will limit how best they can stay injury free long time. And maybe, you know, that even stems back to the massage stuff. You think of all of this. You put it all in put the it all together. In yeah. the in the tick box and think you can do yourself a lot of good or you can totally not believe it and say, Oh, I'm just gonna train through and work through this. And it's like you'd be the lucky one to get away with that. No, you don't have to be scared of running on concrete or tarmac, but you can't just do it all the time. And you don't have to believe in every product that comes out because some of it, it doesn't stand up or it's such poor quality. You pull it on and after a month, it's so slack around your ankle. It's not got any compression at the point that's most important, but it still feels quite tight around the top of your leg where it's least important. So, you know, I think there's various ways of looking at it. But that was just a couple of pieces that's of research good. that I thought would um, would uh, round, off the, um, round off the podcast. Very well done. And just one more, had a, I can't remember, this was a direct message, so I think this might have been through, I guess it's through Facebook direct messaging, I can't remember, I've printed a screen grab, but don't know when when it, when it happened, what it was. <laughs> um, but it's from um, a guy called uh, Craig Bunyan, um, and uh, I think he followed after something I put out that related to something in the podcast, or a, a fitter, faster, further tip through the, um, at Coach Joe Beer Twitter feed, but... Uh, he said um, thanks for the follow he said um, I owe a lot to you and those podcasts taking me from poor to mediocre athlete which I thought was, which I thought was very, very nice to say you know um, and I put uh, thank you so much Craig uh, that makes all the late nights and uh, rubbish days um, very few of those happen uh, to be fair um, and head scratching all worthwhile and he said uh, Ah, yeah, I bet um, I can't write a race report slash blog, let alone something as useful to us mere mortals. And it's what's what's really nice is if people get a little bit of pointing in the right direction without taking it too serious, they start to get some positives back from their you know their their um, their leisure time. And it's not total leisure because it's you know it's challenging. It's not leisure time sat in front of the TV. It's leisure time when they want to push themselves. Um, I can't remember exactly what um, Craig's disciplines or distances are, um, and uh, it'd be good for for him to uh, give us a bit of feedback and tell us you know what's he done that we've told him that works yeah. and, and what hasn't, yeah, and, well, and, yeah. and 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 how how does he know that it's not been an accident that somehow he's improved, or does he see that there's something that he always used to do that was wrong and something clicked that meant and the penny drops right. and yeah. the penny drops and he starts to get progress so it's, it's good because this podcast is um it's not an advert to say um uh i have a, a thousand spots please come and uh, join up because most people actually just need a little bit of help but there are some people that um they've clearly said i've heard the podcast oh i want to you know I want to start coaching or actually, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd one day like to do it, but I can't do it at the moment. Most of the time it's about this going out to people to say, look, we're going to point you in the right direction. And um, if you get good feedback, let us know. If there's something that doesn't work or something you don't understand, let us know. But as, as such, this is just like a great, we hope this points you in the right direction. We're not going to guarantee that you're 
surroundings or opportunities will always guide you correctly to getting good outcomes but a lot of times we're hopefully keeping you on the straight and narrow well that's what we, we were chatting about before we uh, we started recording was you know it only takes we've said this time and time again it only takes for one person just for that 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 kind of eureka moment the light bulb moment just to go pink it just to come on and then you go Right, okay, I get that now. I get why, you know, it's zone one. Uh, I, I get why, you know, you t we train with power and, and, you know, do the hard efforts then and do the, you know, do the easier rides. Um, why compression works. Why kind of, you know, swimming at certain times of the day and not having, to, you know, a stomach full of food or drink, etc., etc. You know, just that little kind of eureka moment where you just turn around and you go, Oh right, yeah. That's why. That's why you don't do it, and I can see my improvements from it. So brilliant. So that's great. Craig, thank well you. Done. Thank you much for that, Craig. Thank you everybody that's contributed questions and the questions that are already on the on the back burner for the next podcast. Um, we took uh, July off, but there'll be another one of these um, soon into September. So once again. Appreciate every uh, rating on iTunes. Uh, contact us with your questions. You can do it through coachdobeer.com. You can do it through uh, the Twitter feed at uh, coachdobeer, or you can do it at facebook.com uh, slash coachdobeer. Newsletter coming out next week. Twitter feed between this that, you know, sometimes the conversations about what we've put out or send something out that just uh, fills in the gap between uh, this podcast and the next. Thank you for listening and certainly a big thank you to the people's input and feedback because I think, you know, it's not about what we sit down and think, what should we talk about? It's what comes our way. Well, that's the, th yeah, that's the thing. And, and hopefully the, um, the, the new surroundings that we're in this evening, hopefully the traffic hasn't, uh, hasn't come through too much and uh, the people that are uh, milling about hasn't come through too much on the, on the yeah. sound. But we, we might even end up, you know, we could do, we could do one of these, you know, in the, in the daytime. Do you know what that would be like? And then you get people walking in. <laughs> it wouldn't be the same, would it? You get people walking in and say, oh, hello. And you can hear like the conversation, the chat, and then somebody say, oh, right, we're going to do a live one and you're going to come in and sit down. And um, we, we'd, we'd obviously have to have a, uh, a language rule for the day that is different to some of the language that uh, is, <laughs> that is, is, is banded around when yeah. somebody drops something or, uh, or uh, breaks something or charges through the door about something that's just uh, fallen off their bike. But no, thank you very much for, um, for your, your input and your questions. And, and your support because it's really nice to know that you know people like the podcast they listen to it it helps them through their training sessions their commute their build up to a race um, to go to sleep to go to sleep <laughs> yeah 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 uh, so thank you for listening remember train smart and have and have fun that's the word Martin. and have fun have fun